Well, over the last several weeks, we have been uh, considering how rapidly our culture has changed and how that rapid change has resulted in an incredible experience of disorientation for Christians and for the church as we've had to learn what it looks like to be faithful to Christ in our strange new world. And with such rapid change and uh, what our culture values and celebrates, we as Christians are tempted towards uh, two distinct yet related things. On the one hand, we are tempted to circle the wagons and to protect ourselves, our families, from all the changes we see out there. On the other hand, we're tempted to conform to the world and to be satisfied with the world as it is and the entertainment and comfort it provides. And while these may seem like they're drastically different temptations, at their core, they're both a failure to trust God at his word and to practice the obedience of faith. Now take, for instance, if we circle the wagons to try to protect ourselves and our families, we're actually neglecting God's command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And yet, if we conform to the world and grow satisfied with the world as it is, we are neglecting the great biblical teaching that this world is broken and that we're actually to live holy and godly lives until Jesus comes back and sets all things right. And as I hinted at, both forms of disobedience are actually a failure to trust God. We disobey because we do not trust God's word is true or that his word is good. And so as we've been saying, the book of Daniel is written to a people who are experiencing an even greater sense of disorientation than we are today. Overnight, these people were taken to a new land and forced to figure out what it meant to be faithful to their God. With new gods, new customs, new morals, and new religious convictions swirling around them. As one pastor points out, at that time, Israel would have been tempted to ignore God's law. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. Try to fit in. Why not disregard the law of God and obey the law of the Babylonians and now the Medes and the Persians? This would avoid discrimination. It would offer a safer future for their people. And so after 70 years in exile, they're starting to get used to living in Babylon. They had a pretty well given up hope that God would take them out of this place and bring them back into the promised land. And by this time, Babylonian armies had even destroyed God's city, Jerusalem, as well as God's holy temple. It looked like the holy gods of Babylon had defeated Israel's God. The Israelites were about ready to give up on their God. That's the context that Daniel 6 is written to. That's the context the original hearers would have first heard this story in. And so, as we look at Daniel 6, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us to obey our trustworthy God. We should obey our trustworthy God. And we'll see this by asking and answering four questions. The first question, what will obedience to our trustworthy God look like when it's fully mature? Answer, mature obedience looks like being above reproach. Second, when should we obey our trustworthy God? We should obey our trustworthy God always, including when God's law conflicts with the laws of men. The third question, how can we obey our trustworthy God? We can obey our trustworthy God by trusting in the grace of our God. And finally, why should we obey our trustworthy God? We should obey our trustworthy God because the obedience of faith brings him glory.
But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this word that you have written to us. We ask that as we come to your word this morning, you would use it to help us see you more clearly. To see that obedience is worth it. And Lord, more importantly, we ask that you would use your word to develop a a deepened trust in us, in Jesus, so that we would be glad to obey because we trust that Jesus is good, that Jesus is gracious, and Jesus is worth all of our obedience. So Lord, now I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted in this place. I ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of our community Bibles under your chair or the chair next to you. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, you can find uh, Daniel chapter 6 on page 743 of our community Bibles. Uh, You'll be looking for a big, bold number 6. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please consider this our gift to you. We would be delighted for you to take this home and be able to engage God's word throughout the week. But once you've found Daniel chapter 6, please take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word. Uh, You know uh, where there is pressure for you to disobey God, where obedience feels difficult. Ask that God might speak to you clearly this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So what will obedience to our trustworthy God look like when it's fully matured? Mature obedience looks like being above reproach. Mature obedience looks like being above reproach. Well, Daniel 5, if you remember now, a few weeks back, concluded with Darius the Mede receiving the kingdom from God. And now Daniel chapter 6 begins with the restructuring of his kingdom. He's going to place 120 satraps or regional governors over the whole kingdom. And over those regional governors, he'll place three high officials. And Daniel is set as one of them. And this is unsurprising because, as always, Daniel has distinguished himself from everyone else by having an excellent spirit within him. Daniel's now been serving in the court of Babylon and now Persia for some 70 years, demonstrating excellence in his work. Everything he does is done with skill and integrity in his character. He is a man who is marked by faithfulness. He had helped the king of Babylon 
on many occasions when no one else could. He had spoken truthfully, even when it would cost him everything. And Darius the king sees all this and recognizes Daniel uh, as someone who is excelling over everyone and plans to then promote him over the whole kingdom. But other politicians at this time get wind of this plan. And they're jealous that a foreign-born exile will somehow be promoted over the entire kingdom. And so they begin to plot behind the scenes to find a way to get rid of him. And here, I just want us to notice briefly that a change in circumstances does not always bring a change in how difficult our life is. Sometimes we can hope that if our circumstances change, my life will be easier. And yet here, Daniel has a new king. New management, and yet his life is still difficult. A change in circumstances doesn't bring a change in relief. It doesn't bring the comfort we might hope. So we need to remember that we ought not to hope in our changing circumstances more than we hope in our unchanging God, because it's only our unchanging God who can deliver us. However, Daniel in this season is marked by such excellence, such a character, such integrity, They cannot find a single complaint against him. They can't find any fault. He has done his work with regards to the kingdom perfectly. It is excellent. And there is no ground for complaint against his character. He is faithful. Now, just to be clear here, this kind of description as being without fault, being blameless, does not mean that Daniel is perfect and without sin. In fact, we'll see in a few weeks in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel himself prays this. We have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commands and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. In this prayer in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel himself is identifying himself with the rebellious people of God. He's identifying himself as a sinner. And so this description here in Daniel chapter 6 of Daniel's character does not mean that he was perfect or sinless, but rather, as Dale Davis points out, he is what Paul calls without reproach, referring to a church leader whose reputation and conduct gave nothing for anyone to grab a hold of. This is what mature obedience looks like. It does not mean that we will perfectly obey God in every circumstance, every single time, but rather that as we look at our life on the whole, or others look at our lives, that we will be unable to find any ground for complaint or any bit of corruption because we've been faithful. Neither negligence or corruption will be found in us. No disappointing omissions, no tantalizing commissions of sin. And this is what the scriptures would say church elders and deacons must be like. This is what all Christians ought to be like. And this is what Daniel is actually like. And so the other governors and high officials begin to recognize the only way they'll be able to find a fault against them is if it's in connection to the law of his God. Everyone knew that Daniel was devoted exclusively to the God of Israel. And since he was above reproach in his work and in his character, they recognize the only way they'll be able to find a complaint against him is if they can find something off-putting about his faith. Now, I want to be careful that I don't overgeneralize here. There could be situations where it's not helpful to imitate Daniel. So, for example, if you're a missionary to a closed country, it's probably not the best idea for everyone to know that you're a Christian. But nevertheless, 
On the whole, I think Daniel's example is the example we should generally follow as Christians in our workplaces as a part of doing our work to the glory of God. First, like Daniel, we want to do our work well and with excellence. We want there to never be any grounds for negligence or fault with the quality of our work. We don't want to be found wasting our time, cutting corners on the projects we've been assigned. If we're students, we want to actually study, turn our assignments in on time, do the work that's been assigned, honor our teachers. So first, we want to do our work well, like Daniel did. Second, we want to live our lives with character and integrity. We want to be above reproach so that no one could ever point out an inconsistency. And so if you're married, you love and honor your spouse in private and in public. If you're single, you aren't giving people mixed signals. You're not playing the field. You're not demonstrating a lack of integrity in your dating life. All of us, we're not given over to addictions or drunkenness or things that would clearly bring disrepute to the name of Christ. You're not a gossip, but trustworthy. And on and on we could go the various ways that we as Christians ought to be marked by integrity. But third, and only if these first two things are true, that we've done our work well and we're people of integrity, if those things are true, then we want to be open about the fact that we are Christians. If those two things aren't true, that's your homework assignment. Do your work well and seek to be a person of character. But if you are doing those things, then people ought to know that you love Jesus. We're neither pushing our faith on others, nor are we hiding our faith from others. And so we'll talk about the fact that our faith is important to us. We'll talk about what we learned in church this past week. We'll talk about an opportunity we have to be with our church family and so on. And so non-Christians ought to be able to look at our life and find no fault with our work or our character. They ought to know that we are Christians. And if they then find fault with us, It ought to be because of what we believe, not how we've communicated our beliefs. They ought to recognize that we have treated them with respect and we've showed honor and dignity to their beliefs, even though we disagree with them. And so this morning, I want to ask you, are you doing your work with excellence and integrity? Is that what your school life or work life is marked by? Kids and teens, are you timely with assignments, respectful to your teachers? Do your non-Christian friends, neighbors, and co-workers know that you're a Christian and that church, our church, is a big part of your life? And even if they disagree with what you believe about Jesus, do they feel that you understand their beliefs and have treated their beliefs with respect? Does the quality of your work and the integrity of your life strengthen your credibility as a Christian or does it undermine it? Now, it's okay if you're in progress. That's why I've said mature obedience looks like these things. God's grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. But by his grace, the Spirit also wants to help us be obedient. He wants to help us become a people who are above reproach. And so a mature obedience will not be perfect, but it will be above reproach. And sometimes, in the case of Daniel, that will actually make our faith a target for attack. Which brings us to our second question. When should we obey our trustworthy God? Look with me at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors, all of them are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction 
But whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper room open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these things, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. So when should we obey our trustworthy God? We should obey our trustworthy God always, including when God's law conflicts with the law of men. Should obey our trustworthy God always, including when God's law conflicts with the law of men. So, since these high officials and governors have recognized the only fault they'll find with Daniel is in connection to the law of God, they hatch a plan to find a fault with him in connection to the law of God. And so they propose to King Darius that all the high officials, all the governors, all the counselors are agreed that anyone who makes a petition to anyone besides Darius, should be cast into the den of lions. And that this law should be according to the law of the Medes and Persians, so that it can't be revoked. Daniel's opponents are brilliantly setting their trap. They present this position to the king as if it has everyone's buy-in, including Daniel's. And Darius is in the infancy of his kingdom. And it would seem wise to initiate a law that would bring unity around him and his authority. And Darius doesn't suspect a thing. And so he signs this law and puts it into place. And notice Daniel's reaction in verse 10. When he learns this law has been signed, he does as he's always done. Daniel goes to his upper room and prays towards Jerusalem three times a day. Now, there was no biblical law commanding that Daniel must pray three times a day, or even that he must pray with his windows open facing Jerusalem. But Daniel does recognize the scriptures have made clear that only God should be the recipient of our prayers. Only he is the one we should look to, not a mere man. And he is praying a scripture directed in keeping with 1 Kings chapter 8. It's there when Solomon is dedicating the temple to God that he recognizes there's a time that may come when the people will be sent into a foreign land because of their disobedience. 
And Solomon pleads with God that God would forgive them and bring them back if his people would pray towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, which represents his presence, and if the people would confess their sin to him. It seems this is why Daniel is praying with his windows open towards Jerusalem and keeping with this petition Solomon made to God. He's likely praying, as he's always prayed, that God's people would repent, that they would commit themselves to holiness, and that God would eventually restore them to their land. And so as one Old Testament scholar points out, we should notice that Daniel values his commitment to God and the place of prayer in that commitment to God so much so that he's willing to die for it. I don't know about you, but I'm convicted by that. When I consider how little it takes for me to start my day and move on without praying for the Lord for the things that matter most, how easy it is to hurry through the day without pausing to ask God the true source of wisdom and power for what I need, I can only confess I don't value prayer the way Daniel did. One way that we as a church seek to cultivate this value for prayer in our hearts is by gathering together as a church every other month to pray, hoping to concretely teach our hearts to lean into the Lord in prayer. And so if your heart is like mine and needs help learning to value prayer, if you are able to, I'd encourage you today to reprioritize your Sunday evening tonight and join us for prayer as we will pray about the things Daniel is concerned for. Prayer about repentance, holiness, and for God to do a work in our church, in our community, and the world around us. But in praying as Daniel normally did, Daniel's enemies were ready, and they caught him praying. And so they immediately come before King Darius and ask first, whether he had made this command that no one should seek a petition aside from coming to him on penalty of death. And the king still, none the wiser, affirms, of course, yes, this law still stands fast, and it's according, once again, to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. The trap has been set and sprung. And with that, they announce to the king that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, has violated their law. And immediately, the king is distressed. The king loves Daniel. He respects Daniel. He has showed favor to Daniel. He's horrified that Daniel has been trapped by this law that he thought was a good idea. And he seeks a way out that he might deliver Daniel. However, once again, he's reminded that the law he signed is one that not even the king could change. Ironically, the very law that's intended to exalt Darius... And to show his authority, his greatness, his grandeur, becomes a law that undermines his wishes. And as one Old Testament commentator points out, we should note then the difference between God's relationship with his law and Darius's relationship with his law. The law in both cases reflects the will and the desires of the one who creates the law. Darius's law reflects what he wanted, and God's law reflects what God wants. We have seen, however, that Darius's law ultimately binds him to a course of action that he didn't want. And when he saw the consequences of action, if he could have changed his mind, he would have. But he could not because he was not above the law. And so we might ask, is God above the law? Well, that's a difficult question. And in one sense, we want to say, yes, God is above everything. God is 
not bound by his own laws. He can do whatever he wants. However, to go down that road is misleading and wrong because the law of God is an expression of the character and nature of God. And so as opposed to Darius's relationship to the law he creates, God's law is always the perfect expression of his character. And so the difference between Darius and God is that God knows himself perfectly and he knows the consequences of all of his actions, all of his decisions. And he makes his pronouncements perfectly. So unlike Darius's law or any of the laws of men that may have consequences that were unintended, maybe even consequences that contradict the very point of the law, God's law never has consequences that surprise him or are not what he intends. So we need to remember the laws of men are necessary for producing a society that is orderly and conducive to leading a peaceful and quiet life. But only God's law is always good, always just, always beautiful and perfect. And so having been trapped by his law and unable to help, the king commands Daniel to be cast into the lion's den and declares to Daniel in verse 16, May your God whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now, it's just an aside. What a potent reminder this is, that getting the right candidate in office will not be the fulfillment of our hope. Daniel's got a king who favors him, wants to do everything to deliver him, and it's still not enough. And we could get the right guy in office, but that's no guarantee that they'll be able to show favor to us. That they'll be able to deliver us. That they'll be able to accomplish all the things we hope for. Only God is able to deliver us in this way. And so we would do well to put our hope not in getting the right guy elected, but in our God whom we serve. And it's our confidence, our trust in the God whom we serve that enables us to obey our trustworthy God, as Daniel did. Even when the law of God conflicts with the law of men. And even when obedience to God's law might involve suffering or even death. The Apostle Peter reminds us, we have been called to endure suffering for doing good. And why is that what we've been called to? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself. To him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Just like Daniel was found blameless, Jesus was found blameless. Just like Daniel suffered for doing good, Jesus suffered for doing good. Yet, unlike Daniel, Jesus was not only above reproach, but he was actually sinless, he was perfect. And he suffered so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so that we might be healed. So when we imitate Daniel's obedience, we actually imitate our Savior, the better Daniel, who not only set us an example like Daniel, but also who died in order to enable us, as Peter says, to die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died and rose from the grave to empower our obedience, to enable us to do what we need to do to please God, so that we might obey him no matter the cost. So following the example of Daniel, following the example of Jesus, and depending upon the power that comes from Jesus' death and resurrection, 
the invitation of Daniel is to obey our trustworthy God even when we experience pressure to disobey God because of human authorities. Yet, even as I say that, we need to be careful in our application of this principle, especially as it relates to honoring the governing authorities. When should we submit to the governing authorities as instituted by God per Paul in Romans 13? And when should we not submit to those authorities? Because to do so would be disobedience to God. That's a difficult question to answer. But I think the key is to understand what God established the government for. Now, just a week ago, uh, several of uh, the elders went to a conference uh, in Chicago. That's the EFCA Theology Conference. And our pre-conference was all about understanding the relationship of the church and the state. And one of the things that's highlighted there is that Genesis 9-6 tells us what the government is authorized to do. It's the first authorization of the government. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is the first authorization for people to organize in such a way such that if someone does someone else harm, they'll be punished for it. And based on that passage, theologians would argue governments are given the authority to protect image bearers from physical harm and to punish those who uh, commit physical harm. Further, they're enabled to preserve human life and to promote human flourishing. However, in the rest of Scripture, we find no authorization for governments to do whatever they wish and to redefine God's law, forbidding what God commands or promoting what God prohibits. And further, and this may be surprising for some of us, but the Scriptures don't authorize governments to prosecute crimes against God. And that they don't permit us to prosecute crimes against God that don't directly harm people. So, for example, governments are not authorized to prosecute blasphemy or false worship. And it would seem that not every sin should be prosecuted and criminalized either, such as adultery or same-sex behavior. Instead, governments must tolerate false religion so long as it doesn't bring physical harm to people. That's, it seems to be, the dividing line. So, when Darius says that no one can pray to anyone but himself, he is clearly overstepping what God has authorized the government to do. He is forbidding what God commands. However, and this is where we need to take care. As one commentator points out, this is somewhat different from the complaint we sometimes hear from Christians about the lack of prayer in our public schools. So, our present law prohibits public school teachers from offering a prayer in our state-run schools. And this would bother some Christians who believe that Daniel 6 provides the motivation for the objection. They'd argue Daniel was told he could not pray, but he persisted in prayer. And so if we're told we can't pray, we must not cave in to the law of the Medes and Persians. And you might present a similar case for things like Christmas displays on government property or the hanging of the Ten Commandments in a judge's courtroom. But I'd suggest to you that these situations are not like what Daniel faced. Daniel was not prohibited from praying in certain locations like the court. He was forbidden to pray to God at all, even in private. But think back to what Daniel faced. Can you imagine Daniel praying before his Akkadian class? Can you imagine Daniel praying before his instruction on divination? Can you imagine Daniel praying as the court opens that God would grant justice? Unlikely. In Babylon, that would be something going on. 
The confusion in America arises because some Christians insist our country is the modern equivalent of Israel. However, Israel's biblical parallel is not other nations like America, but the church. In fact, as we read the Old Testament, if we're to do so correctly and understand the relevance of words to Israel today, we need to apply them not so much to our nation, but to the church. So Israel's biblical parallel is the church, and America's biblical parallel is not Israel, but Babylon, but Assyria, Egypt, and the other great empires that oppose God's people. So that means then modern parallels to Daniel don't take place in the arena of culture wars, making our nation a Christian nation, but rather in more local situations. Imagine a librarian is fired because she refuses to work on a Sunday morning during worship. Or a young teacher or a teenager is told by his parents he cannot meet with the neighborhood church's youth group for prayer because they don't want him involved in all that superstition. Or a wife is told that she can be a Christian, but she must not act like a Christian around the house. Where today we often most encounter conflict similar to that of Daniel 6 is not generally speaking, although it may come again, in the law of God versus the law of the government, but the law of God versus the law of a parent, versus the law of a boss, versus the law of a spouse. So with all that in mind, it might be helpful to recall what our denomination, the EFCA, denies and affirms about the church's relationship to the state. Uh, We write, We are not Christian nationalists who believe the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation or believe that America are God's chosen people. But we do believe that a patriotic love of one's nation is appropriate and that Christians should be good citizens who may freely advocate for God-honoring public policies. And so in the complexities of the world that we live in, we need to then leave room for there to be some difference of opinion among Christians on what faithfulness looks like. The Bible does not often tell us exactly what faithfulness looks like in this specific situation. And if the Bible doesn't directly address that specific situation, then what we're doing is invoking biblical principles. That requires wisdom and the application of those principles. And if we're invoking our wisdom and the application of them, that means we might be wrong. And the other brother or the other sister might be right. And so we need to have a level of charity and freedom in acknowledging that biblical principles might not always be worked out the same way, that we might not all perceive faithfulness in the same way, even if we agree on the authority of Scripture and the biblical principles. So with all that being said, then the question I want to raise for you specifically, so don't imagine you're looking out at the world and you think, oh, that person there, I think they're compromising. Don't imagine that. Think about you specifically. Where do you feel pressure to compromise obedience? Where is obedience difficult for you? Because of the pressure of human authority, because of the pressure of our culture. And if you feel a pressure like that, I want you to know that obedience to God is worth the cost. First Peter tells us, if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God would actually say, if you suffer for obeying, whatever it may be, this is a gift of grace. Because in doing so, you reflect our Savior and you demonstrate how good he is. So when should we obey our trustworthy God? We should obey our trustworthy God always including when the law of God conflicts with the law of men. 
Third, how can we obey our trustworthy God? Look with me at verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, so no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And I also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So how can we obey our trustworthy God? We can obey our trustworthy God by trusting in the grace of our God. By trusting in the grace of our God. So Daniel is cast into the lion's den, and the king has placed his hope in Daniel's God to deliver him. And now the king has to entrust him to Daniel's God as they roll a stone over the lion's den to seal him in. And all night, the king spends his evening fasting. No diversions are brought. He can't pay attention. And the text says uh, sleep fled from him. It's as if he wishes the night could go by in an instant by finding sleep, but sleep won't come to him. So as soon as morning comes... King Darius makes haste to the lion's den to see what has become of Daniel. And as soon as he comes near, he cries out, Has God been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel joyously responds that God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths. And as a result, he was not harmed because he was found blameless before God and Darius. And so Darius commands him to be taken up out of the lion's den. Now some might suggest... That unlike Daniel saying, this is an angel shutting the lion's mouth, perhaps the lions weren't hungry that night. Or perhaps Darius or someone else, in an effort to be sympathetic to Daniel, had the lions fed to the fool or even drugged so that they would leave him alone. But as one commentator points out, any such doubts are dispelled in the following verses. When Daniel's accusers and their families are thrown into the den. The viciousness and the hunger of the lions is on vivid display as they die before they even hit the ground. The accusers set a trap for Daniel, but in the end, they were caught in their own trap. And not only the accusers themselves, but also their families. Now, many of us can understand the judgment that would be brought upon the accusers for what they'd done, but many of us also then struggle with the idea that their families also would fall into the lion's den. And one easy way to alleviate this tension is to recognize that the Bible often describes things that it's not particularly commending. So this command is found on the voice of the Persian king Darius. And it's in clear defiance of God's law that says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. 
And yet, we need to be honest. Even that reality, that truth, this is on the words of the king of Persia, not on Daniel. And it's in direct confrontation of God's law. Doesn't totally relieve us. Because at times in the Old Testament, the people of God are commanded to devote entire people groups to destruction. Husbands, wives, children, animals, everything. And yet, as Pastor David Helm points out, it's important to remember that this punishment was not reserved for Israel's enemies alone. Rather, these are the very things God has brought against his own people. The deportations to Assyria and Babylon. And so, in essence, the Bible presents a God whose wrath is meted out against all humanity because we have all rebelled against his righteous rule. Even his own people have done so. And this truth should leave us still more deeply grateful and that his wrath has been averted by his mercy and the death of our Lord Jesus, who bore his wrath on our behalf. And so the question we're left with is not so much, why would God allow the deaths of these people? But why should God's mercy found in Christ have been so kindly extended to me that we do not have to face God's deserved wrath? And so these verses should not find us cheering on for the destruction of those who oppose God and his people. Rather, we are being warned against rejecting Daniel's God. For there is no hope of preservation outside him. Daniel's God is the God of the living. He's the God who judges the sins of all people. And he is the only one who is able to grant us life. Which brings us then to an important question. Why is Daniel able to be delivered from the lion's den? The text tells us explicitly in verse 23, because Daniel has trusted in God. And listen, if you are not a Christian here this morning, I want you to hear the weight of this. The wrath of a holy and just God is coming against you for your rebellion against him, for your selfishness, for living on the throne of your life rather than acknowledging him as king. Yet, if you would trust If you would look to Jesus, you could be delivered. It's as simple as that. In the same way Daniel was delivered through trusting his God, you can be delivered by trusting in Jesus. This is why God delivered Daniel. And it's also how Daniel obeyed God under the pressure he was facing. Why don't we obey God? Because we don't trust God. We don't trust God's law is actually for our good. And so we choose what we think will bring us life. We don't trust that obedience is the path to true freedom. And so we choose what we want most. We don't trust that God already loves us in Christ. And so we give up thinking we'll never do enough to earn God's pleasure. However, as one commentator points out, as the creator of human beings, God knows what makes us flourish. And he provided the guidance to make it possible. And choosing the right law then leads to freedom and life. And this is what obedience to God always brings. True freedom and everlasting life. And that's the reason obedience to God always requires trust. We must trust that obedience to God is for our good. And this is why Paul would say, it's the grace of God. Not the condemnation of God. Not the discipline of God. It's the grace of God. That trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. When we trust that God is gracious, we can obey him without fear because we know that obedience to God is for our good. 
When we trust that God is gracious, we can obey him without fear of rejection because we know that he has already loved us enough to redeem us. And when we trust God is gracious, we can obey him without his commandments becoming burdensome because we know that in Christ, he's working to purify us, to cleanse us, and enable us to keep his commandments. And as I've already suggested, we have so much more reason to trust in God than Daniel did. Just think. Daniel had seen God's grace through his provision at their testing. Daniel had seen God's grace through the deliverance of his friends from the fiery furnace. He had seen God's grace through the wisdom that God had provided Daniel. And of course, Daniel had seen God's grace through the very many great and precious promises he finds throughout God's word. And yet we have seen even more grace. We've seen God's grace through the provision of Jesus. We've seen God's grace that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. We've seen God's grace that while we were dead in our sin, Jesus rose for our justification. We have seen God's grace that now that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, we have received the Holy Spirit to comfort us, to equip us, to empower us. We have seen God's grace that Jesus is our high priest and advocate. So when the enemy would accuse you, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you, interceding for you, pleading for you. He always lives to make intercession for you. And of course, like Daniel, we have seen God's grace again and again and again through the promises we find in his word. The one that we place the most hope on now is that Jesus is coming back and he will make all things right for his people. So we have all the more reason to trust God and through that trust, obey God. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I wonder if maybe one of the objections you have to Christianity is because you misunderstand when we talk about obedience. It's easy to see that the Bible is chock full of commandments, of things we must obey. And it's easy to assume that a life restricted by God's law is one that would feel burdensome. But I wonder if it would make a difference for you if you understood that obedience to God is not about doing a bunch of things you don't want to do in order to earn God's pleasure. But rather, obedience to God is about doing what you want to do because you already have his pleasure. In Christ, we receive a new heart with new affections and with new desires so that we become the kind of people who actually want to obey God. We actually want to do what God wants us to do because we know that God loves us. And so we simply want to show our love back to God. And this is exactly what Satan, God's enemy and your enemy, would like to prevent you from realizing. Like the lions that devoured Daniel's accusers, Satan is a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And he does that best and most often by casting doubt on the goodness of and grace of God. So please, if you are not a Christian, I'd ask you to look to Christ this morning. He was blameless, and yet he was condemned in your place that you might be delivered from your sin and loved by the king of the universe. Trust him that you might be delivered from God's wrath and experience his life, light, and love. And it's this trust in Christ that then enables us as Christians to obey him and to do it for his good pleasure. So how can we obey our trustworthy God? By trusting in the grace of our God. 
Which then brings us to our final question for this morning. Why should we obey our trustworthy God? Look with me at verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So why should we obey our trustworthy God? Because the obedience of faith brings him glory. Because the obedience of faith brings him glory. Our passage concludes with the impact of Daniel's obedience, trust, and deliverance on King Darius. King Darius recognizes, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, that the God of Daniel is the living God who endures forever and whose kingdom is never destroyed. He is the one who delivers and rescues. He's the one who works signs and wonders in both heaven and on earth. And so Darius makes a decree that all should tremble and fear the God of Daniel. And this is the point of our obedience. As Peter would urge us, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or non-believers honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The whole point of Christian obedience grounded in trust in the grace of our God, even when that obedience might cost us something, whether that's our very lives or simply marginalization, the whole point of that obedience is to bring glory to God. It's that others would see our God is glorious. He is so glorious, we are willing to obey him even if we suffer for it. He is so glorious, we're willing to trust him even when we don't know the end of the story. And our hope is that as they look on our faithfulness, they too would treasure Christ and glorify him with their lives. And truly, our God is glorious. For not only has he delivered Daniel from the lion's den, but in Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, he has already defeated our greatest enemy, sin, Satan, and death itself. And when he comes again, all things will be made right. And so, dear brothers and sisters, don't grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of obeying the Lord our God. For God will use your obedience He will use your trust in him to bring glory to his name. So let's obey our trustworthy God by pursuing a life that's above reproach. By obeying him even when it conflicts with the laws of men. And ultimately, by trusting in his grace that enables us to obey. So that all our obedience might be to his praise, glory, and honor. So as we conclude our time together in God's word this morning. I want to invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. And perhaps these questions on the screen will be a help to you. What steps do you need to take so that your life is above reproach? Commit to take those steps today to be a person of integrity. Where do you feel pressured to disobey God in order to obey human authorities? Trust God's word that if when you do good and suffer for it, that this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
How is the grace of God through Jesus encouraging you to obey God because of your trust in God? Remember all that God has done for you in Christ and let that motivate you towards the obedience that comes from faith. And finally, how are you encouraged to obey God knowing he uses our obedience to accomplish his eternal purpose to redeem a people for himself, for his glory alone? Praise God that he uses people like you and like me to accomplish his purpose for his glory. Let's take a moment to consider what God has been saying to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we confess that there are all sorts of reasons why we are tempted not to obey you. But ultimately, they all stem from a failure to trust you at your word, to trust that you're good, to trust that you're gracious. So we ask that our time together this morning would be used by your spirit to help us see how good and glorious you are, especially in Jesus. And that as we behold the risen Christ together and respond in worship, you would use that to help us be eager to obey you no matter the cost. Because we know that we've been loved by you in Christ. So Lord, help us to go from here faithful to you, trusting that you'll use our faithfulness to bring you glory and honor and praise. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.